would you rather be, rich or poor? Rich. Rich. Rich? Why would you want to be rich? Because uh, so I could buy a lot of stuff. What no, kind of stuff? Legos. Why don't you just buy a castle? It's people that they fight. Oh, gotcha. It's blood ketchup. Blood ketchup? Oh, like, that's not bad. It's like ketchup coming out. Yeah, it's ketchup. just ketchup. And everybody opens their mouths and says, eat the ketchup. Right. No, I love ketchup! It's not complicated. Kids love ketchup and being rich can have its advantages. For inspiration on following God through times of prosperity, look no further than the life of David. Well, this weekend we continue in this series that we've been in for the past couple weeks where we've been looking at different circumstances that King David encountered in his life. And truthfully, there's not one person in this room or in the chapel with us today that can't identify with at least one scenario that we've taken a look at. Whether David endured obscurity, faced victory, faced opposition, or just walked through life with a friend by his side, we know that he was a man who was not only aware of God's truth, but he applied it to his everyday life. And really, that's how we have been defining this phrase, pursuing the heart of God. It's about both knowing and applying God's truth. Now, where we pick up today, never has David's faith been more tested. He has experienced a lot of popularity and fame in the country of Israel. Not even the sitting king, Saul at the time, could compete with his influence at this particular point. Now, one might think that this would cause David to draw closer to the Lord. At first glance, you might conclude that that the success he has encountered would cause him to draw closer to God and thank him for this platform that that he has obviously put him upon. And yet, in actuality, what we will see is that never has his faith been more tested than where we pick up today. And you see, if you and I are not careful, prosperity has the potential to draw us away from the presence of God. You see, we can easily buy into the illusion of self-sufficiency when things are in our favor. I mean, when we land the promotion, we, point, we look back and say it was because of our work ethic, the talent we have, or the connections that we've made in the workplace. When we finally earn the degree, we look and say, well, it's our, our intelligence or our discipline that pulled us through. Now, there's no question that those things are absolutely true. I mean, much of what we do in life is contingent upon our responsibility, and yet... And yet when we're quick to take credit for success in our life, could it be that it shows a very lack of, res- uh, lack of perspective on our part? Now if you have your Bibles, what I want you to do is go ahead and open up to the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. If you have your Bible app, go ahead and jump there now. If you don't own a Bible, there's a black Bible right in front of you. I believe we're going to be on page 209 as we pick up in chapter uh, 24 today. Now where we pick up today, King Saul is still the reigning king of Israel at this particular point, yet his influence and his power is just diminishing every day. And one instance where we really see this play out can be found in chapter 18. Take a look at this moment with me for just, for just a second. It says this, when the victorious Israelite army was returning home after David had killed the Philistine. Now this is a reference to David striking dead Goliath, the giant. 
Women from all the towns of Israel came out to meet King Saul. They sang and danced for joy. They were excited about this. They were doing this with tambourines and cymbals. This was their song. All right, take a look right here. Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. This made Saul very angry. Obviously so. What's this, he said. They credit David with ten thousands and me with only thousands. Next, they'll be making, they'll be making him their king. And so at this particular point in history, Saul was to Israel what Purdue University is to basketball in our state. He was used to defeat. All right? <laughs> and so Saul becomes very aware that this shepherd boy by the name of David has kind of surpassed him in popularity. And while this makes Saul extremely jealous and insecure, David is about to enter into a time in his life where his true colors will be exposed Abraham Lincoln once said this. He said, nearly all men can stand adversity, but if you want to test a man's character, give him power. And so power is something that David has become increasingly familiar with as time has gone on. Now one thing that you have to understand is that all of us at some level desire influence. Our hearts are naturally bent towards this appetite for success. And we need to realize that that is not evil, that is not a bad thing in itself. I mean, after all, it's because of the wealth of many individuals that God's kingdom can advance in our world today. But you see, it becomes an issue when it's all that we live for. When we closely tie our identity to what we do or what we consume, we basically say, you know what, thank you Jesus for the cross, but I think I've got this all on my own. I trust myself a little bit more than you. Now, prosperity doesn't necessarily have to be synonymous with a deep bank account. Any type of achievement or win in life has the potential to ruin you. Well, why is that? Well, because it becomes all about self. And here's the thing. Nobody watches out for you more than you do, right? The uh, Journal of American Medical Association recently cited a study that indicates that in the 20th century, People who lived in each generation were three times more likely to experience depression than people in the prior generation before them. Despite the rise of mental health professionals along with medication, self-help books, and an increased access to information through the internet, people are becoming progressively vulnerable to depression. And so it begs the question, why is that? Well, Martin Seligman, a very intelligent psychologist who professes to no specific religion at all, has a theory that it's because we have replaced church and faith with a tiny little unit that cannot bear the weight of meaning. And that's the self. I mean, we're all about self, right? I mean, we're told from a very early age to fulfill yourself. Express yourself. Devote time to yourself. And when you get a chance throughout the day, make sure you stand in front of a bathroom mirror and post about 30 different selfies for all of your followers to see. But you see, according to the giver of life, the more we make our lives about ourselves, the more miserable we become. Rather, Jesus' prescription for this miserable self-centeredness that we're all guilty of at some level can be found in John chapter 12 when he says this. Take a look. Jesus says, anyone who loves their life will lose it. Now, anyone who hates their life, that just means anyone who gives up their life for something greater than themselves in this world will keep it for eternal life. And so in 1 Samuel chapter 24, David has this opportunity to solidify his influence by swooping in and killing the reigning king, King Saul. 
Now, as we go through this intriguing story today, what I'm going to do is just ask you several questions in an effort to assess how intentional you are with pursuing the heart of God in the midst of your achievements, in the midst of your successes. Now, you have to understand that it is totally possible to run after what God says is right and true in your life when you succeed. The Bible just says that it's just a little bit more difficult. And so in chapter 24, what we see happening here is that um, David has run from his father-in-law Saul because Saul has become so jealous of David that he has made a decision in his mind that he is going to kill him. And the first instance where we see this play out is Saul has thrown his spear at David while in the palace while, Saul, while David is playing the harp. And understand that, again, they were in-laws. <laughs> and you thought you had in-law issues, right? <laughs> you know the difference between an in-law and an outlaw? Outlaws are actually wanted. <laughs> and I'm sure that that was true for David here in this instant. And so David runs from his father-in-law. Saul assembles all of his men together and they chase after David. They go from city to city all throughout the country. And eventually, eventually their paths cross one day. And that's where we pick up in chapter 3. They find themselves in the same cave. Look at what happens. At the place where the road passes some sheepfolds, Saul went into a cave to relieve himself. <laughs> but as it happened, David and his men were hiding farther back in that very cave. Now what I love about the Bible is that we're given just every little detail. <laughs> I mean it says here that, David, or that Saul went into the cave to use the restroom. And so really what we learn in this instant is that even kings back then needed a throne to sit on. But you have to imagine that Saul was extremely vulnerable in this, in this state. I mean, this was David's perfect opportunity for him to take revenge for Saul wanting to take his life. I mean, he very easily could have taken the shortcut to the highest office in the land in this moment. And so my first question that I'd encourage you to honestly ask yourself, and you maybe want to write this down in your bulletin to go through at a later time. My first question for you is this. Do I run over people to get to the top. Do I run over people to get to the top? Now David knew that he was going to be Israel's next king. A couple chapters before this story, the prophet Samuel had anointed David with oil, symbolizing that he was going to be the successor to the throne. And yet in this, in this instance, David tempered those ambitions because he understood that taking Saul's life while he was using the bathroom probably wasn't God's path to the palace. Though let's be honest, that would have been an incredible story, right? <laughs> But you see, it's in this instance that we really understand that when success becomes our greatest desire, it has the potential to become our biggest ruin. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells a story about a son who worked for his really wealthy father. And one day the son went to his dad and asked for his inheritance a little bit early. Now you have to understand that during the first century, this was the equivalent of saying, Dad, I wish you were dead so that I could just take your money and run off with it. Well, in undeserving kindness, the wealthy father gave his son the inheritance, which, by the way, had to be a lot of money. Jesus then says that the son went off, ran away to what he calls the distant country. Now, this was a place that promised instant, lasting gratification. The lure of this city was so enticing that the son woke up one morning, couldn't restrain his patience any longer, and went to his dad and demanded that he give him his inheritance. You see, the son was willing to run over the person who raised him, all to chase an illusion that didn't really exist. 
I mean, and isn't it true that in the pursuit of prosperity, we have the great potential to neglect and run over those that we love most in this life? And maybe if you were to take a step back, and if you were to ask yourself why you've been working so hard, why you're in such deep debt, why you keep telling a child to put off marriage to solidify their career, you too would realize that you've been chasing this mirage called the distant country. And what's interesting is that Jesus makes the point to say that it didn't last too long. This pleasure was not, it was very short-lived. And you see, in a similar fashion, when we set our affections upon building our own kingdoms, when we live for the distant country, we too will realize how fleeting it all really is. In 1 John uh, we see that uh, John talks about how fleeting everything is. He says this, for the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything that we see with our eyes. And pride in our achievements and possessions. He says these are not from the Father, but they are from this world. And this world is fading away along with everything that people crave. But anyone who does what pleases God will live forever. Now, John doesn't say that possessions and achievements are sinful. I mean, if used right, they can be a platform to advance Jesus' mission. But what he does say is that degrees, shiny cars, exotic vacations, and corner offices is the best the world can offer. And the danger of it all is that we can be so distracted by them that they end up serving as a false treatment to our sin sickness Now those things are to be enjoyed in moderation, but they don't possess the power to save. Only Jesus can. And so again, do you run over people to get to the top? The next question I challenge to ask yourself when you're on a mountaintop is this. Is the voice of God louder than the voices of others? Is the voice of God louder than the voices of others? Look at what happens next in the cave as David contemplates what to do with Saul. Should he listen to the advice of his friends, of his army? Or should he do what God says? Look at verse 4. Now is your opportunity, David's men whispered to him. Today the Lord is telling you, I will certainly put your enemy into your power to do with it as you wish. And so what did David do? David crept forward and cut off a piece of the hem of Saul's robe. But then David's conscience began bothering him because he had cut Saul's robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I, should do it, that I should do this to my Lord the king. I shouldn't attack the Lord's anointed one for the Lord himself has chosen him. And so David restrained his men and did not let them kill Saul. Now this scenario shows us that it is a very dangerous thing to flippantly say to others, God told me to tell you Fill in the blank. I think a lot of us in this room are guilty of this. And this can be very damaging because sometimes people speak out of emotion, making their advice very subjective. It can lead people astray thinking that God is maybe taking them one direction when in actuality he may not be. I mean, case in point, David's men were confident that God was telling David to kill King Saul. And yet that wasn't the case. And had David listened to his men, God may have withdrawn the throne from David altogether because it would have been in violation of his law. Now one of the most frequently asked questions that I receive as a pastor typically has to deal with the issue or topic of God's will. I mean people want to sincerely know God's leading in the midst of their decisions, in the midst of their circumstances in life. 
And so if that's you today and you really want to know the voice of God, I just want to share with you uh, two brief principles that help me out in my life. And the first one is this, that God will never lead you to do something that contradicts his word. You see, scripture is our objective revelation of God's will for our life. I had an uncle who attended my wedding and he heard my friend who married us say at one point in the ceremony that God desires for all people to have joy in their life. Well, it just so happens that he wasn't having joy in his marriage right now at that particular point. And so he interpreted that to mean that God wanted him to divorce his wife because he didn't have joy with her. And so he did. But obviously he was just looking for a way out. He was painfully mistaken because according to the Bible, he had no bounds for divorce between he and his wife. And so that's why it is so important for you and I to really master this first part of how we're defining pursuing the heart of God. And that is being familiar with God's word, his truth. Now the second principle that is wise to be guided by is this. That God is a God of clarity, not confusion. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, Paul talks about this early church leader. He says, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Now, what, is this, what does this look like in our life? Well, for me, very practically, when I have a decision to make that I don't have clarity, what I do is I go to about eight different guys in my life that I know are living in submission to Scripture and the Spirit, and I trust these guys with my life. They range from everyone from my dad to my father-in-law to my sister's husbands to one of my pastors growing up and a few uh, friends around uh, the country. And what I do is if I have a decision that I'm not confident about, I seek their advice. And the common thing that I hear between all eight guys, typically that is the direction that God may be taking me towards. It's the common factor between all eight guys. Now you may be saying to yourself, well that's great Patrick, but I don't have friends like that in my life. And to that I'd say, well, that's why it's really important to be a part of a small group here at Crossroads. You see, the voice of God, the voice of God is heard most clearly when in community with other believers. Um, And so in the context maybe of, of you experiencing success, if God's voice seems to be a little bit softer, I want you to realize that it's not because he's trying to be difficult or that he's farther from you. But perhaps, perhaps, your focus has shifted from delighting in him to being impressed with what you've done. Have you ever been there before? I mean, it amazes me how quick I can go from feeling and knowing how broken I am to just feeling indestructible. Now, confession, I'm not that great of a golfer. Uh, I typically shoot in the low 80s and the back nine isn't much better for me either, all right? Now, when I'm slicing the ball, when I can't hit my irons, or I'm spending more time in the sand than David Hasselhoff, I mean, never am I more open to advice than with someone that I may be playing with that I know is a lot better than me at that particular point. But i got to tell you that when I'm playing really well, and every golfer in here can identify with this, I think I need to sign up for the next club tournament. I mean, I think that I'm the PGA's next best thing. I mean, it astounds me how quickly I can go from depression to feeling invincible in just a couple holes. (laughs) I mean, if I'm playing well, don't try to give me advice because I won't listen. I think I've figured the game out. And you see, so it is in life when we're in a season of prosperity. Your 401k is growing. You just got engaged. All your children have moved out and are in a steady career. 
I mean, that's great. Take delight in this season. That would be what God wants you to do. But at the same time, be careful. You see, sometimes favor in life leads to a type of self-reliance that diverts us from seeing our ongoing need to be in communication with our Heavenly Father. And this actually leads me to my third question for you today, and it's this. Do I frequently remind myself of where my ability to succeed ultimately comes from? You see, perspective is what keeps you grounded during your seasons of achievement. D- David's character is put on display when he could have taken revenge on Saul, but, di- but he didn't. And so Saul finishes his business in the cave, and David wants, to know, wants him to know what just happened. I want you to take a look at verse 9. Then he shouted to Saul, For the Lord has placed you at my mercy back there in the cave. Some of my men told me to kill you, but I spared you. For I said, I will never harm the king. He is the Lord's anointed one. Now David's language here shows us that God's calling the shots in his life. You see, David knew that if he were to ever be king, it wasn't because he earned it, but it was because God allowed it. Now look at what David finishes up saying to Saul in verse 12. He says, may the Lord judge between us. Perhaps the Lord will punish you for what you are trying to do to me. But I... But I will never harm you. Now David yields control of the situation by pointing to the supremacy of God. Now though he had struck Goliath dead. And though he had a robust army at his back. Though he had won the popular vote in all of Israel. David intentionally lowered himself by declaring that every achievement he had made was because of the grace of God. Now it's in this moment that we learn something extremely significant and it's this. That prosperity, prosperity without perspective leads to pride. You understand this? I mean, when we achieve something, we naturally tell ourselves, well, it's because of our talent. It's because our intelligence. It's because of maybe how we were raised. It's because of, it's because of our spouse. It's because of fill in the blank. And yet very, very often, we're so quick to claim superiority over what we've done rather than giving the glory to where it ultimately belongs. You see, one of the the greatest threats to your relationship with Jesus isn't adversity or grief, but it's a type of pride that is a byproduct of achievement in our life. Now, on the contrary, on the contrary, prosperity with perspective, it leads to humility. Prosperity with perspective leads to humility. This is when we say, God, it's because of you that I am where I am today. I mean, why me? What did I do to deserve such goodness in my life? And you see, humility is what God is after in your life. You can be a millionaire and be humble. You can be homeless and be prideful. Rather, humility is about having an accurate view of who you are and who God is. And you see, humility always results in generosity in putting others first. Now, as a dad, I love to treat my two-year-old son to different things in life. Uh, About a month ago, uh, me and my whole family, we all piled in the car one evening to head to Chick-fil-A to get God's gift to every person, the ice dream. By brief show of fans, how many of you have had the ice dream before? Okay, two of us. Well, just take our word for it. I mean, it's, it's an amazing ice cream, okay? Well, as we're pulling out of the parking lot that evening, I turn around and John Ryman, my two-year-old son, is dripping his ice cream everywhere. And so I said, hey, buddy, give me your ice cream cone for just a moment. Well, as soon as I asked him that, he shouted back to me every two-year-old's favorite word. What word do you think that was? It starts with an M. 
mine, right? He said, mine. No, it's mine, Daddy. I felt like saying to him in that instance, buddy, you wouldn't exist if it weren't for me. (laughs) Now, we laugh at that because from our perspective, we realize how ridiculous that really is. I mean, it wasn't his ice cream. It was mine that I, I bought for him because as a dad, I love treating him to different things like that. And yet if we take a step back and we, and we take a look at our life, that's probably not much different than a lot of our attitudes. I mean, when was the last time you remembered that it was God who gave you the mind to be a surgeon or to be a teacher? When was the last time you thanked God for giving you the hands to build homes or to fix cars? You see, if you're like me, What seems to be so basic gets forgotten because we frequently fail to remember that what we achieve in life is because of him, not because of us. Now you would think that in ministry that this this mentality doesn't really exist and as a pastor that I I don't struggle with this. But if I can be really open with you today, there's not a day that goes by where I don't battle my pride. And if I can be really open with you, when things go my way here at church or I'm experiencing some victories, I may not say it out loud. But I think it's because of me. And I don't know about you, but nobody gets between God and me more than I do. I mean, right? Isn't that some of our stories? Uh, Back in the spring... The New York Times interviewed the New York, uh, former New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg and he talked a lot about retirement and his political legacy. And at one point in the article he was quoted as saying this, I want to read it to you. I am, not te- I am telling you that if there is a God, when I get to heaven I'm not stopping to be interviewed, he says. I'm heading straight in. I have earned my place in heaven, it's not even close. Now the only person the gospel is not for is the person who believes that he or she has or can earn it. Now, truthfully, some of us probably wouldn't have the audacity to say something like that. Yet if we're honest with ourselves, that's not far off from how some of us think. Because you see, a statement like that comes from the same place where jealousy is harbored towards a sibling who maybe makes more money than you do. A statement like that isn't far off from someone who smugly closes their notebook in a meeting because they conclude there's nothing more to learn from coworkers. Rather, if you want to pursue the heart of God and run after humility, then never be impressed with yourself and be in constant gratitude for what Jesus has done and what God continues to do for you in your life. The late Dallas Willard once wrote this. He said, the most important thing about you is not the things that you achieve, but it is the person that you become. And much of who we become is contingent upon our gratitude. And so David, he, uh, he confronts Saul with a piece of robe in his hand. And I want you to take a look at how Saul responds in verse 16. Here's what he says. Here's what it says. When David had finished speaking, Saul called back. Is that really you, my son David? Then he began to cry. Now for a brief second, Saul is remorseful for how poorly he had treated David. But he wasn't fully repentant. You see, when you're overly consumed by the image of prosperity, you will take drastic measures to maintain it. I mean, why do you think Saul tried to kill David so often? And sadly, this wasn't the last time that Saul tried to take David's life. And so the last question that I want to throw your way is this. Am I more concerned about my appearance 
than my heart? Am I more concerned about my appearance, my image, than my character, than my heart, and who God is making me to be? Now before Saul leaves, he publicly acknowledges for the first time that David will succeed him on the throne. Now to get this, you have to understand that it was ancient Near Eastern custom for the successor of the throne to kill off the predecessor's family as a way of securing his reign. Now before Saul leaves, he requests that David not do that, which honestly is totally understandable. But notice the very last thing that Saul says. Verse 21, now swear to me by the Lord that when that happens, when you become king, David, that you won't kill my family. Again, understandable. But then he says this, and you will not destroy my line of descendants. What does that mean? Now Saul says that, His line of descendants was very important for him. In other words, he wanted historians to view his legacy very favorably. But you see, thousands of years removed from this actual event, what we see is a man who is far more concerned about his legacy than his heart and his soul. And when you're on top of the world, that can very easily happen. Richard Foster once wrote this. He said, superficiality is the curse of our age. Just look at social media. At the church where I used to uh, pastor at down in Texas, I met with a couple one day who wanted me to officiate their wedding. And so I met with them in my office and I went through just a couple things that I ask that all couples agree to if I'm going to marry them. And one of those boundaries is that if you happen to be living together as a couple, that you either separate until after your, after your wedding or you go to a local courthouse and become officially husband and wife by the state and then maybe do a ceremony later on. Now the entire purpose and intent of this is sexual purity. God makes it very clear that the marriage bed is to be kept pure. And let's be honest, it's just more difficult to do that when you're living with the person that you want to spend forever with. Honestly, I didn't know how this couple was going to take it since they were new in their faith. And so I gave them a few days to process it. A couple days later, the guy called me back and he said, you know, Patrick, to be honest with you, I just didn't know that the Bible talks so clearly about sex being for marriage only. He says, so here's what we want to do. We want to go ahead and get married at a local courthouse, become husband and wife, and then would you be willing to do our ceremony later on in the year? I said, that sounds like a great plan. I really commend you for wanting to do this God's way. I can't wait to see how God is going to use your story for his glory. And so a couple days later, I met them at the courthouse, and in a matter of time, they became husband and wife by the state of Texas. About seven months later, when it came time to plan their wedding ceremony in front of family members and friends, I said, hey guys, I take it it's still okay to share your story of obedience and how you wanted to do this relationship God's way and how seven months ago you really became husband and wife and and now you're just going really public with that and um, it's more of a celebration your wedding is than anything. And when I said that, they both looked at each other and they said, well, we've been meaning to talk to you about that. I said, okay, what's going on? They said, well, we didn't really tell everyone that we've been married for the past seven months So if you could just keep that minor detail out of the wedding ceremony, that would be great. People think that we've just been engaged this whole time. Now honestly, I was so disappointed because I knew that God could have used that story of immediate obedience for his glory and for his purpose during their wedding ceremony had I shared it. And so I went against every desire that I had and I ended up keeping my mouth shut and maintaining the secret throughout their wedding ceremony. But as I walked away from my time with them that day in my office for the second time, I couldn't help but realize that they wanted to obey God's word behind closed doors. 
But when it came time to going public with their obedience, they didn't want their friends and family members to think they were taking the whole Jesus thing too seriously. And you see, like a lot of our stories, their decision was motivated more by image than reality. And maybe, maybe you don't have a difficult time standing up for your beliefs and your convictions in front of those around you. But the type of facade that you feel like you need to maintain is someone who has all the answers or is morally superior to the person beside you. Maybe you put a lot of energy and money into clothes that you feel like give you acceptance towards those who are around you. Someone once wrote that when we put on the mask, we put aside the cross. In Matthew chapter 8, Jesus is in the height of his ministry and he's healing lots of people and word is spreading out, spreading out about him around the country. And one day he returned to his home base in the town of Capernaum on the Sea of Galilee. And a very successful Roman officer approached him and pleaded in front of the crowds that Jesus heal his servant who was paralyzed back at his house. And so Jesus responded by saying, oh, okay, I'll come to your home in just a minute. Now you have to understand how unusual this was. I mean, this official was a strong leader of men who represented the elite Roman Empire. He comes before a homeless Jewish man and begs for his help, not in private, not behind closed doors, but in public for everyone to see. And so instead of being ashamed, rather than being focused on how the audience would react or how his reputation might be affected, when Jesus tells him that he will heal him at his house, look at how the centurion responds in verse 8 of Matthew 8. He says, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come into my home. You see, this is the type of heart God is after. A person who is honest about their brokenness. A soul who is boldly vulnerable because they realize that their hope is not in what they do, not in what they've done, but it is found in Christ alone. And what's ironic is that only when you come to a place in your life where you can honestly say, I am not worthy for Jesus, can he invade your life and begin restoring you from the inside out. You see, one of the most freeing things you can come to know and realize is that you're a really broken sinner. But God's deepest need is found for you at the cross of Jesus Christ. And so as we close today, the band is going to come up here and they're going to sing a song called Cornerstone. And we're not going to have a typical invitation. Section hosts are, are not going to be available during the song to, uh, for prayer or anything. They will be available afterwards, after the service. But as this song is sung up here in just a moment, what I want you to do is I want you to listen and read the words that will be up on the screens. And I want you to use this as a time to pray and reflect. Maybe go through those four questions that I gave you and do some honest evaluation of your soul, of your inner self. And I just want you to honestly ask yourself, where are you at with Jesus? Are you putting more stock into him or in what you've done? One of my favorite lines in this song that's about to be sung is this, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly trust in Jesus' name. And so will you make that your declaration today? And so you sit there, you reflect, you pray, and then maybe if you feel led or maybe if you want to, you stand at some point in that song 
and you worship our God who promises to take care of you through life's storms. Let's pray. God, I know that a lot of us in this room have built our lives upon success and prosperity and so much of what we've done. And God, we just come before you as your people today. And we say that we know that's fleeting. And maybe some of us don't even really understand that yet. But God, will you just continue to show us through your grace that building a life on the cornerstone of Jesus Christ is the only way to live because it is the only life that will never dissatisfy. God, only you can save. Not what we do. Not our titles. Nothing else. But Jesus, teach us to trust in you alone. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.